You're listening to the Acts, How the Gospel Changes the World series, preached by Pastor Dan Christians at Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. When I go out and you talk to people in this world, and when you think about why there seems to be an antagonism toward Christianity, why the world looks at Christianity in a negative light, I have found that many times when you talk to those people, the reason they feel negative thoughts toward God is because of something that has happened in their life or the life of someone they have loved. Some suffering that they have gone through or that they have seen. And I don't know about you, but when you're confronted with questions like, why does God allow suffering? Why does God allow innocent people to endure pain and distress? Why does it seem that in this world the wicked are prospering? Those questions are, are, are difficult to answer, aren't they? I mean, you know, once you've been in the Word of God for a while, once you've understood the, the fact of eternity, once you've grasped your mind that this is just a small thing and that for believers the suffering is, is so temporary and that there's eternity in view, then some of those things start to make sense to us. But the fact is, when you're confronted with that question from unbelievers, they're not easy questions to answer. And I don't believe that Christians should should flippantly dismiss them. I think they're real questions that people have. Well, what I want to do tonight is is recognize the fact that God does allow suffering. That innocent people do endure pain, distress, sorrow, grief, and that oftentimes it seems like the wicked do prosper. And so the question for us as believers is, what should we do in the midst of these truths? As we see that happening, and as the pain and distress and the suffering happens to us in our lives, when life just doesn't seem to be going exactly how we would plan it, when we endure difficulties and trials, what do we do? How do we respond? How are we supposed to respond? What is the right thing for Christians to do? Because what we're going to do today is we're going to be able to look in our text tonight at the Apostle Paul. And we're going to see how he is in a stage in his life where he's not just confronted with one individual trial that that comes quickly and passes quickly, that he's in the midst of it and has been for a while. And at the point where we end our text, it doesn't seem to be looking up for him. I mean, he starts in prison, he ends in prison, and there doesn't really seem to be an end in sight. You know, we always, we always are looking for the light at the end of the tunnel. Well, the Apostle Paul, he didn't have that right now. He didn't see it. And so the question is, what did he do? What can we learn about God, and what can we learn about how we should be reacting when this trial, these difficulties come? Because they will come. So let's pray, and then we'll get into the text tonight. Father, we love you. Father, I know that there are people in this room that are going through suffering that I don't know about, that some that I can't imagine, Lord, many things that I haven't gone through. And Father, I know that we serve a God who is worthy of all of us all the time, Lord, that we should serve you and glorify you and worship you no matter what we're going through. But Lord, I also know that, that humanly speaking, we suffer for real. And Lord, I pray that as we look at this text tonight, as we see the life of the Apostle Paul and his example for us, that you would encourage us, Lord, that you'd give us what we need tonight to continue to go on, to continue to worship you and glorify you in the midst of our trials. Lord, I thank you that we have the ultimate example, our Lord and Savior who suffered on the cross, who suffered 
more than we can imagine as the wrath of God was poured out on his head. And Lord, that through his all, his goal was to do your will. And because of what he's done, we have salvation. We can know you. Lord, I pray that, that as we consider the Savior that we serve, that we would be encouraged to, to go on, to press forward, and to do what you want us to do, Lord. I love you. I pray you give me the words tonight, and I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our text begins back all the way in Acts chapter 21. Now, we're not going to go all, all the way back there, and we're not going to explain the story, because it's quite a long story up to this point. But I would encourage you, if you're wondering how we got to this trial, you need to go all the way back to Acts chapter 21 to read it. We're going to be in Acts chapter 25. And Acts chapter 24 really helps set the stage for this. And so in Acts chapter 24, we look back and we see that Paul stands trial before a Roman procurator named Felix. This is an evil man. It's not a, a, a kind, gracious leader. He was a man who was very self-centered, a man who was very much about himself. And, and we see that throughout history. And as Paul stands trial before him, all of these false accusations are leveled against Paul by the Jewish leaders. They have three accusations leveled. The first one is sedition. They said that he's causing riotous behavior, that he's going to cause a riot against Rome. And this was a punishment that was punishable by death. The second one was sacrilege, that he had desecrated the temple, that he had brought a Gentile into the, past the, the border that they were allowed to cross into the Jewish area of the temple, and that was just not allowed. And again, that was punishable by death. And then the third accusation was sectarianism, that he was just promoting a heresy, this heresy of Christianity, or, or the way, as they called it. And so he, he stood against these three accusations, and Paul explained his case. And ultimately we saw that there was no evidence in their favor, that Paul was innocent of all these charges, and the case should have been dismissed. But that is not what Felix did. Felix deferred the case, and we find out at the end of the chapter that he deferred the case ultimately because he was hoping that he could get Paul to give him a bribe to get him out of prison. But while Paul was in prison under Felix, Felix and his wife Drusilla came to see him. And in, at that juncture, Paul was able to explain the gospel very clearly to Felix. And the text says that, that Felix got to the point where he was trembling. He understood the judgment of God. He understood the righteousness that he didn't have, that it could only be found in Christ. He understood those things, and he was trembling. But rather than repenting of his sins and turning to Christ as he was told to do, he put it off until a more convenient time. And the worst mistake of his entire life. And so now we have this man, Felix, who keeps Paul in prison for two more years. And eventually, Felix... Is, he's brought to Rome and charges are leveled against him. And, and he ultimately gets off of those charges, but he is no longer the Roman procurator. And so in Acts chapter 24, verse 27, we find a new guy kind of come on the stage to take Felix's position. Acts 24, 27 says, But after two years, Portius Festus came into Felix's room, and Felix, willing to show the Jews a pleasure, left Paul bound. We're introduced to this new man named Festus. Festus is the new Roman procurator, which means he is the man that is in charge of this area of Judea, and he is the man that would be living in this, in this castle in Caesarea, where Paul was. Paul was under him, that, that he would be the new 
judge that would try Paul. And a little bit, it might be helpful to know a little bit about Festus. Uh, We really don't know much about his background, but we know he served in this position for three years. And during that time, there's not a ton said about him, but there is one thing. Josephus said that he was a man of great honor and that he was a very capable leader. And so as we look at, at his life, all we know about Festus was that he seemed to be a decent leader, especially compared with Felix. Chapter 25, verse 1. Now, when Festus was coming to the province, after three days, he ascended from Caesarea to Jerusalem. Then the high priest and the chief of the Jews informed him against Paul and besought him and desired a favor against him that he would send for him to Jerusalem, laying laying in the wait to kill him. So this is amazing to me. Remember that these Jewish leaders that are spoken about here are the religious leaders of all of Judaism. They are supposed to represent the best of Judaism, right? They are not supposed to be the ones that are laying in wait to kill somebody. They're not supposed to be the ones that are conspiring to commit murder. And yet these guys, it's been two years now that Paul has been in prison. And after two years, their bitterness is so great against Paul that the first thing that they do when they meet the new governor is say, hey, listen, there's this guy named Paul. You need to punish him. You need to get him down to Jerusalem and try him and kill him because he's worthy of death. Is that amazing to you? That I mean, of all the things that they could speak to Festus about, there's one guy who's just, he's been rotting in prison for two years, not doing anything there, not causing any problem. And that's the first thing that they, that just shows you the hatred that the unsaved have for Christ. That bitterness, it's, it's darkness hating light. And that's what we see so clearly here. And so they desire a favor of of Festus, and that is that he will send him to Jerusalem, and that, that during this, now, now they tell him that they want to put him on trial, but they know that their plan is, as he's sent to Jerusalem, they're going to kill him. Verse 4, but Festus answered that Paul should be kept at Caesarea, and that he himself should depart shortly thither. Let them, therefore, said he, which among you are able, go down with me, and accuse this man if there be any wickedness in him. And so Festus says, no, 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 that's not, that's not going to happen. I'm going to stay here for a little while. I'm on my way to Caesarea. When we get there, you can come with me. You can accuse him there, but the trial is going to take place there. Verse 6. And when he had tarried among them ten more days, he went down unto Caesarea, and the next day, sitting in the judgment seat, commanded Paul to be brought. And when he was come, the Jews which came down from Jerusalem stood round about and laid many and grievous complaints. So these, these grievous complaints, they're, they're serious. Okay, the word grievous is just very serious. And complaints is charges. Luke is making the point. Listen, they're trying to kill him. That's their goal. Against Paul. Which they could not prove. And Paul is, Luke, in writing the, gospel, the, the book of Acts, has dealt already with these complaints a number of times. Here he very quickly dismisses them. He says, listen, they brought a lot of serious things. They said a lot of lies. They couldn't prove any of them. Okay, it was all false. Verse 8. While he, Paul, answered for himself, neither against the law of the Jews, neither against the temple, nor yet against Caesar, have I offended anything at all. So Paul makes it clear. Do you remember the three charges brought? He says, neither against the law of the Jews. I haven't committed sectarianism. Okay, I, 
I haven't broken the law of the Jews, neither against the temple, sacrilege, haven't, haven't done that, um, nor yet against Caesar, sedition, I haven't done that. I'm not guilty of those things. I have not offended in anything at all. And what a wonderful thing when Christians can stand up and be tried of something and say, listen, honestly, I'm not guilty. Paul could. Then said Paul, I stand at Caesar's judgment seat where I ought to be judged. To the Jews I have done no wrong as, as thou very well knowest. And listen, at this point, it is common knowledge that Paul is not guilty. Everybody on the Roman side of things knows that Paul is not guilty. The Jews know that he's been tried four times already, and every time the answer has been not guilty. And so nobody is under this, this delusion that Paul is still guilty of these things. The Jews just want him dead, and the Romans don't have the guts to set him free because they're worried that it's going to make the Jews angry. And so he says, listen, you know, you know I'm not guilty. He says, for if I be an offender or I have committed anything worthy of death, I refuse not to die. But if there be none of these things whereof these accuse me, no man may deliver me unto them. I appeal unto Caesar. Paul makes it very clear. Listen, I'm, I'm innocent of these things. I haven't done anything that they're accusing me of. If, if you're going to continue to... to try me and continue to now expect me to go to Jerusalem and to go on trial in Jerusalem where I know that it's, it's not going to go well for me there. It's not going to go well for me if I stand in front of the Sanhedrin again. If you're going to expect me to do that, I'm appealing to Caesar. Uh, this appealing to Caesar was something that, that he could do because he was a Roman citizen. It was called provocatio. And it was just that if a Roman citizen believed that they would be punished without a proper trial, they could appeal to Caesar. And so that's what he does here. But Festus has the ability to deny this claim. And so in verse 12 it says, Then Festus, when he had conferred with the council, answered, Hast thou appealed unto Caesar? Unto Caesar shalt thou go. Paul now is on his way to Rome. But in verse 13, something interesting happens. Because it would seem like this could be the end of the story and the next thing that happened is Paul goes to Caesar, but we have another chapter and a half before that actually happens. And in between there, we find that another character, a very interesting character, comes on the scene. In verse 13 it says, And after certain days, King Agrippa and Bernice came unto Caesarea to salute Festus. And so King Agrippa, it's important to understand a little bit about these characters as well. King Agrippa is a fascinating guy. This is King Agrippa II. Do you remember King Agrippa I? It was his father, and he is the man who killed James in Acts chapter 12 and wanted to kill Peter. And ultimately, he was killed by God because he accepted worship that belonged to God. And when that happened, this King Agrippa was 17 years old. Now, naturally, it would have made sense that King Agrippa II would receive all of the land and all the territories that his father was in charge of. But because he was so young, uh, Emperor Claudius decided that he would give him a very small portion to the north, in, in modern-day Lebanon, north of Galilee, and that he would divide up the land and make different procurators in charge of different areas of land. And so that's why Festus is now the procurator of Judea, even though... Agrippa's father was in charge of all of Palestine, Judea included. 
Okay, so now you have these guys who you might expect kind of to be enemies, but they're not. They seem to be friends. Fifteen years have passed since Agrippa's death, and so this king, Agrippa, has been growing in power. He's been given more and more land. He's been given part of Galilee. He's been given part of uh, Perea. And, and so at this point, Agrippa has a great reputation among the Jews, a good reputation in Rome. And so Festus takes this opportunity, knowing that Agrippa knows a lot about Judaism, to talk to him about this case. The other person we're introduced to in verse 13 is this lady named Bernice. Bernice, you'd expect to be the wife of Agrippa. And the truth is, for 15 years, it seemed they lived that way. But it was his sister. Bernice was the daughter of King Agrippa I. And so there, in, in this type of, I mean, incestuous relationship for 15 years, and in this, this is how they come to deal with this case. I, I, I say that because I think it's amazing that God in his sovereignty allows all of this to happen. You have all of these evil men, you have these, these wicked people living in sin that are now going to be, once again, over and over again, judging Paul. They're the guys in power, they're the guys in authority, Paul is the one rotting in prison, and Paul is the servant of God. This is the situation that, that Acts chapter 25 presents to us. Verse 14, And when they had been there many days, Festus declared Paul's cause unto the king, saying, There is a certain man left in bonds by Felix about whom, when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews informed me, desiring to have judgment against him. Okay, so as soon as I got to Jerusalem, the chief priests, the elders, all of the religious leaders, they came to me and they wanted him to be punished. The word judgment, it doesn't mean I want you to judge him and put him on trial. It means I want you to punish him. Verse 16, To whom I answered, It is not the manner of the Romans to deliver any man to die before that which he was accused, have the accusers face to face and have license to answer for himself concerning the crime laid against him. As we look at Rome, one of the things that stands out about that nation was that they had a wonderful legal system. And it's only because of that wonderful legal system that ultimately was put in place by God's sovereignty that Paul is still alive today. All the way along, we have seen this legal system work on Paul's behalf. And once again, he explains that the reason I didn't do what all that they wanted me to do, the reason that I didn't punish him before the trial, was, trial happened, was because of, of our legal system. He's saying, I did everything that I was supposed to do. Verse 17, Therefore, when they were come hither, without any delay, on the morrow I sat in the judgment seat and commanded the man to be brought forth, against whom, when the accusers stood up, they brought none accusation, of such things as I supposed, but had certain questions against him of their own superstition and of one Jesus which was dead, whom Paul affirmed to be alive. See, Luke gave us a really quick snapshot of what that trial looked like that day, but I love how here we get, we get the substance of it. We understand now that, do you know what they were talking about? I mean, he says, I thought they were going to bring some, some type of criminal... What a criminal thing against him. Can't even talk. Um, but, but he says they didn't. Okay? It, wasn't, it wasn't like that. They were talking about Jesus, and Paul was saying that Jesus was alive. I mean, that's what they talked about. And what a wonderful thing that Paul gets to stand there over and over again in front of these Roman citizens, in front of 
the, some of the highest, the people with the highest positions in Rome in front of all the Jewish leaders and affirm again and again and again that Jesus is alive. In this terrible circumstance, over and over again, Jesus is glorified. Verse 20, And because I doubted of such manner of questions, because I didn't understand why they were asking these weird questions, I asked him whether he would go to Jerusalem and there be judged of these matters. And so I said, Hey, listen, Paul, will you go to Jerusalem with me? Because then at least we can put you in front of the Sanhedrin and they can deal with the religious stuff, because that's not, that's not my department. Verse 21, But when Paul had appealed to be reserved unto the hearing of Augustus, and there, Augustus is, is interesting, because Augustus died in AD 14. And so he was no longer the emperor. But the word Augustus means uh, reverence or worthy to be revered. And so when he says the word Augustus, don't be confused. The, the, the Caesar right now is Nero. Okay? And so he's, he's, he's appealed to go to see Nero Caesar. Um, Augustus is simply saying, hearing from the, the one worthy to be revered, I commanded him to be kept until I might send him, him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said unto Festus, I would also hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said he, thou shalt hear him. How does Paul end up standing before Agrippa? I mean, all of this is just so fascinating how God has worked out this, this meeting where it just happens that Agrippa and Bernice come to visit Festus, and they just happen to end up talking about Paul, and, and he hears enough information that he happens to be interested in the case, and he says, hey, listen, I want to I talk to Paul too. And we're going to see in the next few chapters that Paul gets to the point where Agrippa is, is at the, the door of salvation. And he walks away. But it, it's such a wonderful, this whole thing is just a wonderful story that I think illustrates the sovereignty of our God. Now, we see that this is a fascinating story. But for us, what is the point? This week I spent a lot of time asking myself that question. What, what is the point? This is, this is great, but this is 2,000 years removed from us. We don't encounter what Paul encountered here. So how can I take a text like this one and say, okay, now, now go and do this. Hey, this is how this ought to change us. I realize that Paul is suffering adverse circumstances. Our trials are often very different from Paul's. But I think in Paul's trials and in, in his circumstances, there's so much that we can learn about God and how he uses these circumstances. And I think there's so much we can learn about ourselves and how we're supposed to react to them as children of God. And so what I want to do for the rest of our time tonight is just notice five things about these circumstances that I think are applicable to, to anybody suffering any adverse circumstances in their lives. The first one is this. The adverse circumstance occurred in the midst of Paul's obedience to God. It was in the midst of Paul's obedience to God. Can you consider for a second what Paul has already endured? I mean, he came to Jerusalem. Why was he in Jerusalem in the first place? Because he had been all around the world preaching the gospel and collecting money from the Gentile churches so that he could bring it back to the Jerusalem church so that he could give them money and take care of their needs. So not only was he giving the gospel and spiritual life to people, he was trying to take care of their physical needs as well. What a wonderful man. What a, what a guy that we should celebrate as a hero. What happens to him? He gets beaten to the point of death, saved by the Romans, and since that time he's been put into trial after trial after trial, and all false things have been said about, against him, 
and he hasn't been vindicated in all this. Yes, they've seen that he's innocent, but it's not like, okay, you're innocent, so go free. It's like, oh, you're innocent, but you're, you're kind of a political pawn right now, and so I'm just going to keep you, you know, in prison for a while to appease the Jews. And so you have the Jewish religious leaders that sit with their beautiful robes on in their beautiful temple, with everybody worshiping them and thinking that they're wonderful and revering them. You have these wicked rulers of the Romans, like Felix, who... <laughs> or we're keeping him there just because he want to, wants a bribe. He gets to do whatever he wants to do. He has all his freedom. And then you have the godly man, Paul, who's stuck here in prison. What's going on here? It doesn't make any sense to me, right? But the adverse circumstances occurred in the midst of Paul's obedience to God. Listen, this is a great lesson for us. First of all, it's not your job to pursue a comfortable life. Don't pursue it. Don't, don't look for the easy road. Don't go to work and think, okay, well, what can I do to always stay under the radar? What do I need to do to get this, this promotion? Okay, how do I make everybody all the time like me? How do I get everybody to praise me and worship me and think highly of me? That's not what Paul did. Paul did what was right. Remember, it, for him, it was about his conscience being, being without offense before God and man. That's how he lived. And so he was not doing anything to be comfortable. He was doing things just to be right, to be obedient. And I think it's a good lesson for us that when we encounter these trials and difficulties and there's an easy way and there's the right way, you take the right way. You do what's... You be obedient to our God. Okay, and if it means you're going to suffer, and it probably will, then that's wonderful. Suffer for God. That's what he does. The second thing, though, as we think about that, I think we realize that, <laughs> that God's cool with that. Right? God is okay with his servant's suffering. This side of heaven, his desire for you is not going to be to live the most comfortable, wonderful lifestyle that you can imagine. It's just not. God is pleased with Paul's suffering because in the midst of his suffering, he's bringing glory to him. And so it's a good thing. And, and God might have you go through suffering, and, and, and it's okay. It's part of his plan, and he is pleased with it. The adverse circumstances occurred in the midst of Paul's obedience to God. We've seen this so many times throughout the Bible. You see Joseph, you see Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Daniel, and Lion's Den. We've seen it even earlier. I mean, you look at those stories and you say, well, it was a happy ending. Okay, well, how about James, the apostle, who was killed? Is that a happy ending? Well, ultimately, yes, because he was killed and he went to glory to see his Savior. Right? You have men like William Tyndale who translated the Bible in English for the first time. What a great godly man. You know what happened to him? He was burned at the stake. Happy ending? Well, yeah, because he got to go to glory suffering for his Savior. I can't think of a better ending, a better thing, you know, a million and a trillion years from now to look back at my life and say, listen, I, I, the way I ended it was suffering for my Savior. That, that's how I went. Okay? Now, that's not saying that there aren't other good ways to die, but, but imagine being able to, for eternity to know that your death was because you loved Christ and you were serving him, and that was the price you paid. So many men we can go throughout history. Jim Elliott, Nate Saint, Ed McCauley, Peter Fleming, Roger Uterin, uh, all those men who were killed by the Aka Indians. Over and over again, we see adverse circumstance in the midst of obedience. And it's okay. Number two, we see that adverse circumstances did not negate Paul's duty to be faithful and wise. Paul went through a lot, 
And, and, and I might just say, Paul, listen, you've done a great job up to this point. You know, take a little break. Go on a vacation. Chill out a little bit. But it didn't negate Paul's, Paul's duty to be obedient, to be faithful, to be wise. If Paul were to react in frustration this time, I would understand it. But do you know how he reacts? He reacts displaying the fruits of the Spirit. You think about what he, what he went through and, and then his reaction and how calm he was and how collected he was and how what he did, all he did was go back to Jesus and that Jesus was dead and that he rose again. And that's what he talked about. He never attacked the religious leaders who, who really deserved to be attacked. He wasn't angry even when Festus was using him as, as a political pawn. He, he was calm and collected and he just made a statement. Listen, I... If I've done something wrong, then you can kill me. But if I haven't, I appeal to Caesar because I should be set free. But he's calm and collected. And so we see in his life peace and patience and kindness and faith and self-control. We see so many of the fruits of the Spirit evident. And it's because when Paul was going through those things, the expectation of God was that he would continue to be a Christian. That he would be continue to be Spirit-filled and to display the fruits of the Spirit. He exercises wisdom and love in all of this. And above all of these things, I think it's, it's wonderful that Paul's message never falters. It never changes. He's been through it over and over again, and at this point, if Paul was to denounce Christ and deny Christ, even to get set free, even with the idea that, hey, listen, this is smart, because if I do this now, then tomorrow I can be back on the mission field. Paul doesn't change his message. He stays true to the fact that Jesus is dead, that he, that he affirmed him to be alive. We go through adverse circumstances. I hope we understand that as we do this, that, that's not a license to, to do anything differently. That all of God's commands, he expects them to be fulfilled no matter what circumstance you're in, good and bad. I often think about our teenagers going to high school, and I think, you know what, that's a tough thing to go through. There is a lot of temptation and a lot of difficulty. And some people might say, well you have a pass for a couple of years because that's just, that's just too hard for anybody to get through. Do you know what the Bible says? It says the same thing to, to every teenager as it does to every adult, as it does to everybody about what they're supposed to do. And so adverse circumstances, our, our circumstances at all, whether they're adverse or great, they don't change God's commands. They don't change what's expected of us. Number three, the adverse circumstances did not contradict God's sovereign plan. God's sovereign plan didn't change. I heard a story this week, and it was about uh, a man who, on October 4th in 1980, there was a, a terrible death that occurred on, in Chicago in a suburb of Oak Park. And there was a man that was killed, and this other man named Steve Linscott was tried for this murder because he came forward with, with it's kind of weird, but he came forward with a dream that he had had. And when the police heard this dream about somebody being killed, and they, they kind of put together with this, this man who actually had been killed, they just assumed that this was kind of a, a psychopath, a little bit crazy guy, but that this was a confession to the murder. And so he, he was given 40 years in prison. Well, this man, Steve Linscott, was, he was in Bible college at the time. He had a family, three kids. And so for 12 years, he, stood, he sat in prison until 12 years later, new evidence came forward. They found the guy that actually committed the murder, and he was finally set free. And you think, what's good about that? How is that at all good? How is, how is that demonstrating God's sovereign plan? This is what Steve Linscott said. 
He said, I've come to realize that we cannot judge God's purposes, nor where he places us, nor why he chooses one path for our lives as opposed to another. The Bible itself is replete with accounts of divine action or inaction that does not seem fair, that does not make sense except when viewed in light of God's perfect plan. Thousands of Egyptian children were massacred while a baby named Moses was spared. Jacob was a liar and a thief, and yet it was he, not his faithful brother Esau, who received the blessing of their father Isaac and of God. On one level, it makes no sense that God would allow his son to die for the sins of humankind, but God has a plan, a perfect plan. When we think of adverse circumstances and we ever question whether God is in them, whether this circumstance can ever bring God glory, I encourage you to always look back to the cross. Because at the cross, we see the worst circumstance imaginable, where mankind has rebelled and turned against his creator to the point where they're, they're, they're tearing off his beard and spitting on him and, and beating him and torturing him and, and finding everything they, they can to inflict every kind of pain possible upon him. They put him through the worst death they could imagine. This is mankind rebelling against an almighty God and doing that to, that, to, to him. The worst circumstance possible. And yet through that circumstance, the very best thing possible happened. <laughs> Salvation of mankind is only possible because of the cross. At the cross, he died for each one of us. And so when we go through things in our life and we say, listen, I don't get how this glorifies God, the thing that brought more glory to God than anything else happened on that cross. Worst circumstance possible. Listen, the end of his story, Steve Linscott, it meant that he, for 12 years, didn't get to spend time with his family. He never received this wow moment where it was like, I get why God did this. But there's a lot of times that it's going to happen in our lives where it's not going to happen this side of heaven. And yet, Steve Linscott is able to look and say, listen, I don't get it, but I know that God has a perfect plan. And we look at our text tonight and we say, why did Paul spend two years just rotting in prison doing nothing? I don't get it. But I do believe that God had a perfect plan. And so these adverse circumstances did not contradict God's sovereign plan. You know, God views things from a very different point of view from us. And I believe that in a million years, we will too. And so when we get so caught up in our temporary circumstances, just remember that this world, it's a vapor. It's going to be gone real quick. And God sees it very differently than we do. Number four, the adverse circumstances were used by God to answer Paul's prayer. In the midst of all of this negative things that are happening to Paul, do you know that God is going to use all of this ultimately to answer Paul's prayer? Back in Acts chapter 19, verse 21, Paul said that he purposed in his heart when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia to go to Jerusalem, saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. A few years ago, Paul had a prayer, he had a desire, he wanted to go see Rome. And then, soon after this, Paul wrote from Corinth to the Romans, and he wrote in Romans chapter 1, verse 9, For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers, making request, if by any means now at length I might have a prosperous journey by the will of God to come to you, for I long to see you that I might impart 
unto you some spiritual gift, to the end you may be established, that is, I may be comforted together with you by the mutual faith, both of you and me. Paul's prayer to the church of Rome was that he would get there, that he would see them, that he could impart to them some spiritual gift. He couldn't wait to get to Rome. And Paul assumed that that meant he would, he would freely travel to Rome and share the gospel the whole time, and he would come as a free man to Rome, and he would, he would help out the church there. Well, God all the time knew that's not how it was going to go. But God used this, this adverse circumstance to answer that prayer. Because ultimately, he appealed to Caesar. And because he appealed to Caesar, he was brought to Rome. Sometimes God is answering our prayers in ways that we have no idea. But he's still working. Number five. The adverse circumstances were only temporary. The adverse circumstances were only temporary. If you're a believer in Christ, this ought to encourage you more than anything else. We ask the questions. Why do the wicked prosper? A man named Asaph, back in Psalm 73, wrote one of the most beautiful psalms. And he, he asked that very question. In Psalm chapter 73, verse 3, he said, For I was envious at the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no bands in their death. Their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men. Neither are they plagued like other men. He went on and on in that psalm to speak about when he looked at the wicked, how they prospered so much. And he couldn't understand it. And listen, isn't this true? If you and I look at other people and, and we see them live wicked lives and we see them prospering and we wonder, what's going on, Lord? Why is this the case? Can I tell you what Asaph came to his conclusion? Psalm 73, verse 17, he said, Until I went in the sanctuary of God. In other words, until I got to the point where I went just to meet God and to go where God was and to try and see things from God's point of view, until I did that, it, it made no sense to me. But I went to meet God, the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their end. Surely thou didst set them in slippery places. Thou castest them down into destruction. How are they brought into desolation as in a moment they are utterly consumed with terrors? Listen, he looked and he saw and it didn't make any sense to them. And then he went and he, and he for a moment saw it from God's point of view. And what he saw was that what seems to be a great circumstance right now is just temporary. And what seemed to be suffering for himself right now was also just temporary. And I believe that Paul, more than anybody else, understood this truth. And I believe that Paul's, the reason that Paul was such a wonderful believer, the reason he was so obedient in all of these circumstances is because more than any Christian that has ever lived, he had eternity on his mind. He believed it. He didn't live for now. He didn't live for the temporary. Oftentimes he said things for me to live as Christ and die as gain. Listen, I'm going to live in Christ and I can't wait to see him. I can't wait to die. We don't live like that, do we? To die as gain. I mean, we're looking forward to that day. He said in Romans 8.18, 8, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall re be revealed in us. Paul got it. He had the right point of view. And I hope we understand that as we, as we encounter adverse circumstances, as, as life seems to be tough, we can go back to the place where we say, Lord, I understand this is temporary. And I pray that in this you're glorified. I pray that in this I'm obedient. And I pray that in this I do everything I'm supposed to do because I know ultimately what matters is eternity, not now. This is the most encouraging thought for any Christian going through trials and struggles. And, and I don't mean to be flippant about trials. 
No, I, I don't. I understand they're real and they're hard and they're difficult. What I'm saying is, this truth can get us through. This truth can encourage us through them. It's just temporary. There is no such thing as a Christian who is immune from adversity. I think if we were to, to get up and just share for a moment some of the struggles that we all have, we would be amazed at the things that other people in this church struggle with. I think that there's burdens that are born here that, that would shock us, that are heavy, difficult. When we look at Paul's life, it was a pretty ex- extraordinary life, wasn't it? I mean, he went through a lot that, that we can't even fathom. But understand that, that Paul was a man. And, and his adverse circumstance might be different than yours, but the lessons aren't different. The God isn't different. What Paul did in his hard times is what we need to do in our hard times. These adverse circumstances occurred in the midst of Paul's obedience. Paul was doing right, and this is what he went through. And they did not negate Paul's duty to be faithful and wise. Paul was commanded to do right, and he just kept doing it. And he kept being a witness for the gospel, and he kept glorifying Christ through it all. These circumstances did not contradict God's sovereign plan. At no point in all of this was God not in control. Was God surprised? This this is what he knew he had for Paul. And this is what God knows he has for you. The adverse circumstances were used by God to answer Paul's prayer. And these adverse circumstances were only for a short time. They were just temporary. We have one life to glorify God. We're not supposed to do it when it's only good. Do you know that every idolatrous person in the entire world glorifies their God, whatever it is, when things are good? It doesn't matter. I mean, everybody in this earth serves something. And when things are good, everybody is happy with their God when things are good. And if you're a Christian, and the only time that you find yourself glorifying God is when things are good, you're missing it. Because we don't serve a God that's worthy to be glorified and and praised and and that we should be obedient to when things are good. We serve a God who is worthy of glory and honor and praise when we suffer, in the midst of our suffering. Because we, and we alone, have a God who went to the cross and suffered for us. If you live your life and you glorify God when things are good, it's going to be like this much of your life where you're glorifying God. And we're commanded to do it the whole time, right? And so I hope that tonight we'll all go home and we'll think about where we're at and we'll question, Lord, am I praising you in this circumstance? Lord, am I still being obedient? Am I still doing what, what I have to do? Lord, what do I need to change in my life to make sure that, that this adversity is not changing what I'm supposed to do for you and that throughout this adversity I'm glorifying God? If we would do that, I, I can guarantee the spirit of our church, everything about our church, it would change. It would be right. Let's pray.